The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hi, everyone. Glad you were able to make it tonight. Weary Minnesotans waiting for spring. We have up in our bulletin board in the office uh, this little postcard I saw a long time ago. There's a artist in the Seattle area, someone who's done a lot of Zen practice, and uh, he painted this painting um, in kind of a traditional Japanese inkbrush style, a bird, and out of the beak of the bird, flowers are coming out, and the scene, you know, there are no leaves on the trees, so it, it kind of looks like winter, and the caption underneath says, Birds singing flowers while waiting for spring. And then the next line is, practice being happy while awaiting happiness. So maybe that's what we're doing. Like, I'm, I'm going to common ground tonight. I don't care if it's blizzard conditions or whatever. Exhausted by the weekly storms we've had the last five weeks <coughs> and all the flu and other things that have been blowing along with the weather. So anyway, I'm happy that people were able to make it. And um, this is the monthly time that I just remind us all how this all happens. Many of you know you've been coming and you understand that for the last 25 years there's, there's been this beautiful and very simple circle of generosity where all the leaders and community members, we've invited each other to receive whatever you get, being here, listening to the talks or programs, to receive it as a free gift, no strings attached. Because of everything people do, right, to make this place possible, then we get to practice receiving it as a free gift. And we don't, I don't expect that to be easy. It isn't easy for me, and I don't think it's generally that easy to receive free gifts. We're always suspicious. What's the hook? You know, what's the trick here? What's the catch? And then naturally when we get good at receiving common ground as a free gift, then we'll hopefully be inspired to give back in a way that makes sense in your life. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. Everyone's situation is different. So we don't give suggested donations because that's not in the spirit of the way we're operating. We really want people to find their own way. And you'll know your own way when you check in with the aftertaste and it feels good, it makes you happy, you know. And so people who don't have any money, who might be in debt or whatever, out of a job, you know, it's not, the whole point is not to give money you don't really have to give because the aftertaste of that is like, I shouldn't have done that. I got to pay rent or I got to, you know, buy some food or whatever. So that doesn't leave a good taste. You have to actually see, like, given your particular circumstances, what leaves a good taste. And like any organization this size, you know, our costs are kind of the same as anybody else's. Our budget is between $350,000 and $400,000 a year, somewhere in that vicinity. And that allows us to have the building, and we're developing a retreat property out west of Wisconsin, and we have our, you know, paid office staff, and we have, we support the livelihood of our teachers who are teaching. 
and it it works. And it's really a beautiful circle. And and the invitation isn't just to have that sense of receiving in a generous way and giving in a generous way in your relationship with Kamgram, but to explore like what would that look like with my partner, or what would that look like with my friends, or with even with my paid job. Even though there may be a contract, I can still pour my heart into whatever I'm doing and really feel good about the giving and I can totally receive whatever comes back my way. People appreciating my work, maybe they actually pay me. I can receive that as a free gift too, even if it is a contract, right? Because it's really more about this attitude of living our life with generosity. We receive what comes our way even Minnesota winters in a generous way, and we give ourselves to our life and to our relationships, like your relationship to common ground, in a generous way, in a way that's enlivening and and leaves a good taste. Right. So we have to be mindful. Like, okay, I did that, and how does that feel now? Like the Buddha said, you know, a wise act of generosity feels good when you think about doing it. And then feels good when you do it, and then feels good after you've done it. Right? And so that's how you check in on it. Like every time you remember, for example, how you're relating to common ground or any other relationship you're in in your life, you check in like, how's that feeling? And it's like actually really supporting. Like, oh yeah, that feels good. That feels clean. That it's like uh, the memory of it, the ideas or the the leftover feeling, it's like a good feeling. It's a, it really is what protects us is that more and more of our relationships have that good feeling. So then when something arises, cause not everything's going to be healthy in our, you know, the relationships we have. So then when there is a really messy place in our life, what gives us stamina and a willingness to see what we need to see there, a willingness to speak truth, in that situation, to say what needs to be said, is that at least a number of our relationships are healthy. They have that good taste. That creates a lot of stability to address the relationships that aren't so healthy, that aren't so beautiful. So if you have any questions about that, feel free to check in with me at the end. Or Gail Iverson, a longtime leader here, she used to be the chair of our board and one of our regular teachers for many, many years. She's also our bookkeeper, and she works every Tuesday. And so you can connect with her if you want to know any more details. And I think there should be a sheet of paper out by the donation bowl with more details and, of course, more stuff on our website, too, That if you want more details on how it all works here. So uh, we've begun recently, Shelley and I, um, the people who teach the weekly practice groups, probably a couple months at least, um, this topic of loving kindness in the Buddhist teachings. And most of you maybe have heard already, but the Buddha strongly encourages attention to these different qualities of the heart. In the tradition, it's, they're called the Brahma Vihara. So you might hear that Pali phrase. The English translation is something like the divine abode. So the idea is like, I mean, you could probably divide it up in different ways, but the way the Buddha divided it up, he said there are four beautiful emotions that it would be really nice to train your heart to abide 
you know, to live with these four emotions. So the first is metta, basic friendliness, goodwill. Often it gets translated as loving kindness. But it's really basic. It's just that basic, the heart's capacity for that basic goodness. Like that basic willingness to connect, to include. Oh yeah, I'm willing to show up in this moment. I'm willing to show up and feel the feeling that's here or meet the person that's in front of me. That's that basic goodness. You can call it friendliness. You can call it benevolence or goodwill or loving kindness or kindness. You can call it whatever you want. I like actually using the word love. <laughs> Although there's this great line from Thich Nhat Hanh. Some of you know he's a very well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk. He's getting up there. He's uh, not doing so well. He's in his mid to late 90s now. And it's while back he had a stroke. So he hasn't really taught in a few years now. And I think there's been some other complications more recently. So, But anyway, a long time ago, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, <clears throat> metta can be translated as love or loving kindness. Some Buddhist teachers prefer loving kindness as they find the word love too dangerous. But I prefer the word love. Words sometimes get sick and we have to heal them. We've been using the word love to mean appetite or desire, as in I love hamburgers. We have to use language more carefully. We have to restore the meaning of the word love. Love is a beautiful word. We have to restore its meaning. The word metta has roots <coughs> in the world, in the word friend. In Buddhism, the primary meaning of love is friendship. And what do we do with friends? We're willing to include them, you know, in the complexity of their habits. You know, we don't pick and choose like a real friend. A real friend, it's like we take the whole package. That's kind of the definition of a real friend. It's like some of our siblings too. It's like we don't, like our connection, our willingness to include our sibling, it isn't dependent on like, like, oh yeah, that would be a good person to get to know because, you know, they have this attribute or that. No, no. It's sort of like they're in. They get rights to my attention. They get rights, you know, to like, for me, they get my couch when they need it or my guest room when they need it, right? And it's not like, oh yeah, no, no, I don't go there with you on that, you know. I'm I'm willing to play ping pong with you, but I'm not willing to hear your pain. See, that's not a good friend. A good friend is like whatever whatever they need, however they're showing up, we say yes to it. So that's that friendliness of metta. So that's one, that's that sort of underlying quality of of love. But then love, you know, when it meets suffering, then it has kind of has a different shape and texture. We call it compassion. The Pali word is karuna. Karuna or compassion, just to be really specific, is that quality that knows how to be intimate with suffering, our suffering or someone else's suffering. Not afraid of it. So it's an enlivening, it's a healing, it's a beautiful emotion. It's just that that emotion is moving, is active, 
when I'm in the proximity of suffering, my own or someone else's. And what actually allows me to be intimate is that mental quality, heart quality of compassion. Like I'm not afraid to be real here. I'm not afraid to show up here with the messiness or the uncertainty or the pain that I'm feeling or someone else is in the middle of. And then I'm sure you've noticed this at times where you've been, let's say, with someone who's in a lot of suffering and two things are happening. It's like, in a way, we're aware of that person's suffering and there's there's this very strong movement like, whatever I can do to alleviate your suffering, I want to do. And so there's this sense of like, I don't want you to suffer. I want to be able to alleviate that if I can. And it's very enlivening at the same time. It's very beautiful to be there with that person, to be willing to help if you can. Sometimes there isn't anything for us to do. But feeling quite enlivened because I can be there, because I can be there without fear and without needing their suffering to go away, right? Because that's a, that's a not so subtle, aggressive or even violence to the person to say like, I'm willing to be here with you if you get better. But I can't stand it if you don't get better or even worse, if you get more sick or more whatever. That's not being compassionate. That's being controlling, you know, and judgmental and expressing fear. Basically, we'd be amplifying the fear that the person might have themselves. Like, I don't want to be sick. I don't want to be dying. I don't want to be in this difficult place. And then there we are, like, I don't want you to be in that either. Please stop being you, you know, in your situation, because I can't handle it. Right? That's not helpful, obviously, to the person. What's helpful is, I totally am here. I totally feel what it feels like to be here, to sense where you're at. I totally want to contribute to this pain going away. And I'm totally not afraid of your suffering. I'm really practicing not being afraid, not needing this to be other than it is right now. Because I know that that's the skillful way. It's a gift to you because you also need to practice not being afraid of what's happening to you right now because that will allow both you and me to be clearer and more nimble and more creative in how we respond to the suffering that you're facing by not being afraid of it. Because if I start getting afraid or tight about my own or somebody's suffering, my mind is distorted, like how I take care of myself, what I do. It gets contracted. I'm just not as effective. My compassion, my commitment to alleviate your suffering is just less effective. So our basic friendliness, metta, compassion, karuna. And then when that good heart, that basic love, that capacity to include, to be intimate, meets goodness or somebody's happiness or somebody's success, 
then the way love expresses itself, well, that's different. So the English translation is usually something like appreciative joy or sympathetic joy or gladness. And the Pali word is mudita. So you might hear that sometimes. So mudita is that delighting in the goodness and the beauty and the wholesomeness that we run into from time to time. Hopefully, we run into from time to time. And we want to be able to be intimate with that. Like, what would be in the way of that? Well, being envious. Like, why is all that good stuff happening to you? What about me? But you see, that's kind of a closing down, a separating movement in the heart. But our heart can have a completely different relationship like, your happiness makes me happy. Your happiness is a cause for me actually experiencing joy. When we see children playing and feeling, you know, apparently unburdened by the world, right? It's so we can, that's a very natural place to feel some mudita. But some of our friends, even some of our closest friends, it's like we want them to be happy, but not too happy. You know how that is? So these are really good places to practice mudita when some good things happen to your friends. Like, especially in a place where you haven't experienced a lot of success or you're really longing for some you know, good stuff to happen and then it happens to a dear friend. And then really notice the choice between the mind sliding into envy or, or, or oh poor me or whatever. Or, you know, I can sense your happiness and and actually that makes me happy that you're happy. I can see your success, even really ordinary things, you know, where your partner is there, you know, and you already had your slice of pie and now they're eating their slice and the last slice. You kind of like some more pie, but you already had yours. And again, it's like a really simple, like, because the choice, when you, when we look at it with some space, it just makes so much more sense. Instead of feeling that greed, like maybe she'll see me whimpering here and give me half of her piece. Right? That sort of occupying that needy, place is not a very pleasant way to be a human being. But like seeing her, just in a raw sense, like here's a beast who enjoys apple pie, you know, eating apple pie. It's not going to last this pleasure, but it's real, even if it's very temporary. Like this beast is getting a little wave of pleasure. And I'm not going to sort of Oh, it's, you know, be gone and I can just let that in for a few seconds. May you be happy. May the sweetness and tanginess and the flakiness of the crust. (laughs) 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 May it make you happy. May it be a cause for real happiness. And that quality of mind is a much more expansive, buoyant way of being than the envious, oh poor me, or whatever other mind state that we might be in. 
And there are moments, like I've really gotten in the habit now when I feed, when we feed the cat, you know, I stand there and watch. Although we have a finicky cat, so it hurts sometimes when he doesn't like what we give him. And we're willing to give him anything. We were so, our earlier cat that we had for 19 years died several years ago. And I vowed never to have another cat. But I made a little caveat. I said, but if a cat shows up and makes it abundantly clear it's supposed to be with us, I'll relent. And uh, so I was out doing my retreat practice at Prairie Farm, Common Grounds Retreat Property in Western Wisconsin. And this scraggly, scrawny, tick-infested, flea-infested, freezing cat. It was like May, and it was really cold week or two that I was out there. And it just wouldn't relent, wouldn't leave me alone. And clearly it had gotten kicked out of some farm in the area and was getting beaten up by the other cats from the farms around where our retreat property is. And I found it one night just crying in our compost heap out at the retreat property, trying to get some food there. And whenever I'd go outside to do (coughs) walking practice, it would like leap up on me. I mean, it was like, I thought, oh God, why did I make that caveat? So anyway, that catch is now, and it's somehow it's finicky, even though we give it whatever it wants to eat, just sort of, it's kind of likes cheap cat food, you know, cheap <laughs> organic chicken, simply prepared, just won't eat, really. <laughs> so anyway, you know, but I, the point is, like, even though he's finicky, I'll just stand there and I'll watch him eat for a few seconds. And it's like, there's that's just some simple joy. And I'll, you know, I'll walk. We've got a nice big window looking toward the backyard. I'll stand, and there's a bird feeder right there in the middle of the backyard. And I'll watch the chickadees. You know, and I have my favorites, like these birds I like more than those birds. But I, I regardless of the birds, I notice how nice it is. And it used to bother me that some birds do this, you know, to get to the seeds that they like and throwing all the other seeds. But then it's like I've learned to feel like, well, the squirrels get some of them, right? And like that can be a cause for happiness too. Because what my mind wants to do is think there are too many squirrels and they're greedy. They eat too much. But, but you know, that just makes my mind and body tight. But instead I could think, They just want to eat like I want to eat. Why not let the squirrels, when I see them eating, why not let that be a cause for joy? Why do I have to bring to mind how many squirrels there are? Sometimes there are like five squirrels at a time in our yard. (laughs) It's like five, and then you count how many houses are in that block, and then you realize, like, that's a lot of squirrels. But it's just like, what do we pay attention to? So mudita, it's like, why not, while we're just sort of living our life, why don't we make a habit of noticing simple things that are cause for happiness? We see somebody's nice sweater, we go, oh, that sweater is really nice. Instead of thinking, like, where can I get it? Why not, like, you know, that person probably feels really good having that sweater. May you be happy. Or you see two people at the center who seem to be in love or seem to be like having a nice time being here together. It's like, oh yeah, may your joy, may your happiness together. Of course we're imagining it or just some vague sense of it, 
but still it can be a cause for mudita, which is an expansive, buoyant, beautiful quality of the mind. Because otherwise our mind is going to be doing something else, which will be generally a contracting, heavy state of mind. And there's always this choice about how we relate to suffering, how do we relate to joy, and just how we relate. So that brings me to the fourth quality, which is equanimity. Peka is the Pali word. So equanimity is this capacity we have. It's a kind of love that knows how to be intimate with things that are ambiguous, uncertain, confusing. Like I can really, in a generous way, say, yep, I don't have a clue what's going on. But yeah, I'm right here. I'm willing to be unafraid. I'm willing to be interested. I'm willing to see this and feel this. That's a quality of love. Now that's sort of a little unusual that the Buddha, when he was sort of just watching his own mind and getting clear of the different facets, different expressions of love, saw that uh, equanimity is one of the foundational qualities of love, like just this capacity to be okay, to be non-attached. Like I can be intimate, I can really be undefended, even when I don't have a clue what's going on. That's really a powerful kind of love. Because it's relatively easy for our hearts to be moved in a wholesome way when we see especially somebody suffering that's younger or weaker. You know, it sort of breaks our heart open. And it is generally, especially with certain folks, when we see someone experiencing some real happiness, it's relatively easy to be touched. But when all hell's breaking loose and we don't know which is up and which is down, and like politics these days, you know, it's really hard to kind of like let it in. Oh yeah, like this this craziness, I guess, belongs. Meaning, I don't know which end is up, I don't know how this is going to play itself out, but I'm going to let it touch my heart. I'm going to let it in. I'm not going to do this thing where it's like, it shouldn't be this way. right? I mean, it's true that the suffering that's happening breaks our heart, right? And it especially breaks our heart when we see suffering that seems like it could be avoided, right? So that's definitely, we're not pretending that that isn't touching our heart, that it, the injustice and the unnecessary suffering that's going on. But we also understand, like this is what equanimity allows, Sometimes it's like this. How do I know that? Because now it's like this. Right? So it, this is like equanimity trusts the conditional nature of things. Like when something's happening, there are causes and conditions. Somebody, it's not like there's a evil force in the universe saying, well, I'm going to really mess with those humans. You know, make this happen. It's just this play, if you like that word, or this dance 
of impersonal causes and conditions. And sometimes that dance looks like this. And that's like when we get sick exactly when we can't get sick because we got so much to do. You know? Oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. How do I know? Because it's like this now. Can this be okay? Is there an equanimity, a kind of love that can embrace, that can be intimate, that can be unafraid, not in a hurry with this? Have a kind relationship with this. And a lot of the work, you know, we'll do these months when we're <clears throat> paying attention more to loving kindness and all of its many expressions. It's really about transforming our sense of what's possible. I remember <clears throat> one of the great texts for this uh, general area of spiritual practice was written by Sharon Salzberg. Many of you know her. She's quite popular. Buddhist author and one of my teachers and, you know, one of our elders in this particular Western lineage of early Buddhism, what we call early Buddhism, sometimes Vipassana or insight meditation. That's what Kamgarn is in that lineage here in the West. But more and more we refer to it as early Buddhism. Um, but Sharon, maybe about 20 years ago now, it's been a while, wrote a book called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. And even it's not dated at all. It's just a great manual on these Buddhist teachings on love. So I encourage you to get it. It's an audio format, digital format, or buy. You can get it. It's still available in bookstores and online, of course. By the way, Sharon just had a, those of you who know her or know of her, she just had a kind of a medical emergency less, maybe about a week ago or five days ago. I think she's okay, it's stable, but she's had to cancel her teaching engagements for the next several months. So it's a pretty serious um, condition, but looks like she'll improve. Um, so I'm sure she'd appreciate our good wishes sent her way. Yeah, but Sharon is one who brought up, makes this point really strongly that to do this work, and this is good night, as we were beginning to kind of bring our attention and our practice to loving kindness, doesn't mean you have to change how you've been meditating. Just see how you normally meditate, how you like to do your awareness practice. See it as an act of kindness or an act of love without necessarily changing what you're doing. Okay, I'm connecting with the body, breathing in. Like those of you who've been coming, you've heard me say a hundred thousand times, breathing in, sensitive to the whole body. Breathing out, sensitive to the whole body. But can't we use our imagination to see that as an act of love? That breathing in and that willingness to be intimate with the whole body. To really embrace, to really connect, to really trust, to be kind. Like being aware is an act of kindness. I mean, haven't we felt that with a good friend or a lover? Like where they really... You just sense that, like, I'm not judging you. I'm just there. I'm just here. Or even being physically held, like a, some physical affection. But what we really felt is like, I'm here. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of being intimate, of all that you are, <laughs> you know. 
including all of the confusion or all of what is not on, uh, you know, what what is not known, like all the hidden. I'm just like there, here. It's really healing to be in those moments where someone's holding that kind of space, that kind of non-fear. So anyway, that point of that Sharon made that just seems so important as we begin this work is don't like really be careful to notice the limits of our imagination, like the idea we have about, oh, no, no, I'm a grumpy person. Or I can't, you know, I'm the person who hates this about the world or hates this about this person. Where we basically have concluded, I can't open my heart. I can't be in relationship to that. I have to do this, some version of this, or turn away. Get really curious about those places where we turn away, where we push away, where we... And then the way we get curious is first we notice what it feels like and we have kindness toward that. So like, let's say there's somebody we really hate or somebody we're really afraid of. Then notice what that feels like. And then come into relationship with what that feels like. Don't think, don't tell yourself, that's another act of violence. You should be able to love that person. Don't do that. Because that's a kind of judgment and hate. Judgment is a expression of aversion or hate, right? I don't want you to be the person who can't love that person. But instead go, okay, what's that hate feel? Oh, that hate does not feel good. Or that fear does not feel good. Or that resentment does not feel good. Well, can I get close? Can I have a loving or a compassionate relationship to that resentment, to that fear? What does it feel like? Am I willing to be close? Can I hold it? We were talking the other day, and I forget what the group was, but that old phrase, you probably, some of you remember the song, if you were raised in a Christian tradition, rock, rock in my soul in the bosom of Abraham. Right? Just so happens there was a scholar, religion scholar in the room, because I asked, it's like, like, what's that about? Why, why are we rocking our soul in the bosom of Abraham and not... God or Jesus or something like that, Mary. But he had he he knew because Abraham is sort of represents from the Old Testament the covenant, like it was like a legal contract where God said, "This is what this person reported." God said, "If you love me and kind of follow my laws, then I'll lo- then I'll love you. I'll have mercy. You'll be part of my flock." Right, so that, and Abraham sort of represents the contract that folks had with God back then in the Old Testament days. But that, that sense of salvation or being held, how do we get that in practice? And it's really learning to uncover this basic goodness. And later Buddhist traditions, they use the phrase bodhicitta, which is a common phrase in all the different schools of Buddhism. So bodhi is the same root word as Buddha. So it just means awake. And citta is the word for heart or mind. 
they're not two things, heart and mind, one thing in, in the Buddhist um, psychology. So the awakened heart, you could say. But in later Buddhist traditions, this awakened heart or bodhicitta really is this kind of embracing, fearless, compassionate presence. And it's, in a way, it's here, it's always here, but it's obscured by our neurotic habits. So we don't need so so much a beneficent deity that will take care of us, like the shepherd model in some other religious spiritual traditions. It's more about finding that underneath the neurotic self-drama that sort of gets our attention almost all the time because it's juicy. It's intense. It feels charged. And and the mind has gotten addicted to the intensity and charge of neurotic or self-drama, right? So a lot of what we're learning to do in practice is to undo the addiction. Initially, it feels so boring to drop into the present moment. It takes a while to feel how liberating and enlivening and beautiful that is. We actually have to learn to look for that. And that's why we're taking these couple months to really train ourselves to recognize these qualities of love. And again, you know, the Buddha divided it into these four qualities of that basic goodness or friendliness, compassion, the capacity to appreciate what's good, what's beautiful, appreciate the happiness of others, and equanimity. And with these four qualities, or you know, the different expressions of love, we're really learning to trust what's here. You could say sort of the ground, the common ground of our being, when aversion and greed you know, those are considered in Buddhist psychology the animating activity of an ordinary human being. And because they're intense and juicy, the attention always goes there. That's the habit. That's the addictive habit. So we're learning to unhook from that habit and more and more often drop in to this simple presence. And then we're going to start noticing that the simple presence is characterized by these really beautiful emotions. I mean, generally the emotion of love. That's what's left. That's what's there when neurotic activity temporarily ceases. Right? And again, initially it doesn't seem like much because we're, it's like you've been eating Doritos constantly for weeks and someone gives you oatmeal or, I mean, really good oatmeal. Or, you know, brown rice, piece of whole wheat toast with nothing on it. It's like, it's deadly. It's like, it doesn't feel like food if you've been eating Doritos, right? Because our taste has been corrupted by the intensity, right? We don't actually, we lose common sense, like what's actually good for me, 
the only thing that feels good is to eat more Doritos. That's the nature. So I want to save some time so we can, because we'll be talking about this for a while, and there's obviously there's a lot of wisdom in the room because <clears throat> one way or another, all of us, even if you're new to Buddhist awareness practice, all of us have been learning a thing or two about love and about what's in the way of love since about two or three years of age, you know, or maybe before, who knows, but... So be nice, your questions, your comments, what gets in the way of love. And remember, a lot of what we're doing, like for homework, is just tracking moments of real intimacy and getting a sense of the love that's there. And then moments of real disconnection where we feel like, I can't embrace the moment. I can't show up. And noticing what's there. Without judgment, we're not judging the moments of disconnection or, or, or sort of attaching to the moments of connection. We're just learning the territory. So we have about 10 minutes before we end. be nice to hear from a few of you. What have you been learning? What questions come to mind? Hi, I'm Noah. So I think you mentioned something about this, about feeling the joy of the squirrels or you're eating the food or your significant other eating their pie. I had a similar experience. So my brother got married yesterday and I got to give a toast, which is kind of nerve wracking to speak in front of a bunch of people. And I have had a lot of expectations for myself. I want to, you know, be funny and charming and make everybody laugh and be nostalgic and mean, you know, all these things. So that kind of creates like a hot spot in myself of this intense pressure of checking in on how everything is going. I had an experience where I started to realize everybody has, there's, you know, however many people are in the room have like an individual perceptual filter of what's going on. And I almost felt like I could not project myself onto what they were experiencing, but wonder, I wonder what this person's perceiving. I wonder what this person's perceiving. I'm just one of the few hundred people that are here. And it took a lot of the pressure off. I'm just part of this kind of mega being of all these people in this group. And I have a role to play right now. I'm now I'm the speaker. Uh, I wonder, you know, I was more curious instead of judgmental towards myself. I was like, huh, I wonder how this experience is for them. And that person, they're, they're not nervous. They're not in front of the people. And that calmed me down a little bit. And just, it was kind of just a small little epiphany of, huh, everybody's just perceiving things right now. It's not just me. And I'm just one of all these people. So my failure success is not really that monumental as I thought. I don't know. I just thought, and when you mentioned that, I thought that's kind of a a strange thing. It's a really perfect example, although it's always hard to articulate that experience that Noah's talking about. And because it will happen in an infinite number of ways. And it doesn't really matter, like the way Noah described it, that being curious, I've got my perception, they got their perceptions, you know. But what really is relevant is the dropping, like that that perception that we're in this together, that it's really like the unity view 
versus the separation view. And whatever helps the mind abandon the separation view, the duality view, me and all of you, right? Like if I could bring that view to mind, like, and part of it, like even as I'm sitting, like, well, what do they think? What do they think about Noah? He was talking, you know, it's like it gets really tight and erotic very quickly. But there's an infinite number of ways for all of us right now to just sense the space of the room. It's like growing roots into this moment. Like we're in the space, a bunch of folks, all of us have bodies, they're naked under our clothes, you know, we have histories, we don't know when we're going to die. It's like all of a sudden it feels like much more like a whole. Right? When we, so it really matters what we pay attention to. And like what Noah, what year, for whatever reason, whatever the causes were, your mind chose to pay attention to certain things that really allowed the heart to abandon its general, its usual perception of separation and the fear and other, you know, not so useful qualities that would be there with that perception of separation. And you probably did a beautiful job. Regardless of what you said, because you were coming from that place of wholeness instead of doing the toast from that place of separation or from that place of being the brother who wants to be liked, you know, or being the brother who wants to do a good job. You know, I mean, it's totally understandable when we're in that place, but it's really nice when we don't have to inhabit that space. So it's a really practical example you gave us. Thanks. I'd like to go next. Thoughts from your life? Yeah, please. You want to help pass the mic over here? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Catherine. I um, I had a question about compassion. Um, when you were speaking earlier, you were saying how important it is to meet your interactions with other people as an exercise of love. Um and that is really fun. It's a great way to get to know the world. One thing I, I really struggle with is um, in sort of that uh, in that process of intimacy, I think something I've experienced is a lot of people aren't getting that kind of attention from their community, whoever, in their daily lives. And... Um, some, sometimes it feels like there's a, there's then a grasping for the type of attention I'm giving them, which I'm averse to that feeling of somebody trying to really grasp at that attention from me because it's, it's exhausting. So well, I was and just curious. we might be afraid that it's endless too. Yeah. And, and, um, and I have had that experience before where that, kind of uh, snowballs into something that is is just incredibly exhausting. Um so I was just curious what like how to best balance that that want to just be with other people in a genuine way and show that love and show that full presence with them. Um and not be so scared that they're going to, you know, yeah. Kind but, of respond in but that part way. of what when love shows up and they see somebody who's really needy and and kind of wants to feed on 
our willingness to be present and to be loving, then doesn't wisdom and love understand like them trying to feed on my presence or my showing up for them, that's not helping them. Because we can't actually fill that space. Right? We call that codependence, like where somebody thinks they're going to get something from us that will make their pain go away. So part of it is, it's like our compassion for them, where it's not superficial. So like allowing somebody to become dependent on us doesn't actually help them. It might temporarily mask the pain that they're dealing with, but it doesn't really remove the pain. They're just become dependent on us. Now, I know this, I'm making it more simple than it is because I know this is really difficult. And there's another piece to this too, which is being really compassionate and honest about our own fear in those moments of getting swallowed, you know, or getting in a sticky and unhealthy relationship. And so, as we're interacting with that person and doing our best to show up skillfully and generously and with compassion, at some point we might feel overwhelmed or afraid. And we, compassion, you know, compassion doesn't have preferences like preferring this person need or suffering over my own suffering. So compassion will sense our own suffering in that moment. Like, oh honey, you're not feeling comfortable. Let me listen to that. Let me respond to that too. And so the adjustment happens organically, like, you know, where we learn when we meet that person, I have 30 minutes. And when we say that, we actually have 30 minutes. If we don't, then we say, I have 15 minutes. And we were really there for 15 minutes. I can do this for you. So we, we realize that this, we realize the situation because we're not afraid of it, so we can actually see it clearly. And then we learn. Maybe we make a few mistakes, but eventually we learn and to say to the person, this is what I can do. And what we say we can do, we really can do generously. Because because we feel like we can take care of ourselves, we're not afraid to be generous. Because we're not afraid of saying, now I go. You know, this is what I can do. I can do this with real love. I really care about you. And I'm going to really show up for this. And part of it is like we know how to be comfortable with their suffering. Now I know that doesn't that sounds a little callous to say it that way, but it's really important because suffering isn't going to disappear. So if we're showing up to the world and to suffering because we think it's going to disappear, that's called delusion. So can we be comfortable that that person's suffering is continuing as we turn away to go home to take a bath or we turn go home to even to do something silly like watch some TV even though that person is you know wherever they are and suffering but we're you know drinking a beer and watching some TV but maybe that's what we need to do maybe we need to chill out maybe that's a compassionate act i don't know and we'll find out, like, is that just avoidance or is that keeping the heart in balance? 
So we don't know, but I, this is, the compassion is moving me to do this, and, but I, even as I do that, I'm going to be aware, because I want to really take care of myself, and I really want to take care of all beings. And I know that I don't know how to do that, so I'm going to track it moment by moment. And that humility will really help. But remember, your sensitivity isn't just to that person's suffering. It's also to your own well-being. Because real love isn't making distinctions. And we're, we're pretty sensitive to our own happiness and unhappiness. So we're gonna, if we're not attuned to that, like starting to feel uncomfortable, then you really want to ask you, why, why is compassion not attuned to my own sense of safety and comfort? Why is it just sort of focused on that person's suffering? Because real love, real compassion is quite nimble and quite like, uh, no preferences. It's sensitive all around. And that's what allows it to be skillful. Otherwise it can get really skewed. And a lot of us have, because of our cultural conditioning, um, are, yeah, it's been skewed where we think it's, we have to give, and especially people with, uh, who have been conditioned as females in our culture have this more strongly to give, to give, to give, and to be less aware as if it's somehow a mistake or wrong to respond to my own needs. Oh, oh, this, how am I feeling? Oh, I'm feeling this. Well, can I really show up for that and respond to that? What would that be like? Am I okay taking care of my needs? Why, why am I not, why does that feel weird to take care of my own needs here? That's really good territory to explore. Thanks, Catherine, for sharing with us. And Noah. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Appreciate being here together. Appreciate the silence. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.